Uh, if we've never met before, my name is Matt Lewoyne. I have the privilege of serving as the pastor here of Liberty Church. Um, I'll be another face to, to greet you this morning. For, for whatever reason you find yourself here, we're just honored that you would spend uh, part of your weekend, part of your, your Sunday uh, with us. Before we jump into our teaching this morning, I just wanted to give a really short uh, budget update. It's coming up on the end of the year. Uh, I know many of you, depending on your, your work schedules and your, and your pay schedules, decide to give big gifts at the end of the year. It just works out well that way. Just wanted to give you a brief update on, on how we're doing financially. Our new fiscal year started July 1st, so we're coming up on the halfway point to that. Um, right now, as we stand, we're about $30,000 behind where we would like to be, uh, according to the budget that we set at the beginning of the year. Um, that's not insurmountable. That's not crazy. We've, we've managed our expenses as well to, to mirror that. Um, but we really would like to make up that difference here between now and the end of, of December. Um, so if you, uh, if you regularly give, I just want to say thank you to you. We appreciate that. We depend upon your gifts to serve here locally and also partner globally. Uh, if you are newer with us and you're just checking us out, welcome to you. This is not, this is not directed at you. Uh, if you are here and been here for a while, consider this your church, have not um, decided to partner with us financially yet, I would ask you to prayerfully consider that. Uh, and if at the end of the year you find yourself um, with extra money that you're looking to, to give away to bless people uh, of, of our church and of our region and our world, would encourage you to, to consider doing that with, with Liberty. A couple highlights, just of things we're able to do with the money that you give. Um, this year so far, we've been able to give away about $3,000 of care team funds to help people in our church and our region with just really tangible needs that they have. Um, we've given $10,000 already to church planting efforts, um, both through the Liberty Network and others. Uh, we have $15,000 more committed to do that this calendar year, so we're going to continue to uh, give funds away to church planting. We've given away just shy of $2,000 toward uh, international mission trips. Um, that would be actually apart from Joe and Christy Marlin, who we partner with in an even bigger way. Uh, we've given another 2000 toward international mission trips. And then for the Marlins, this is really encouraging to me. Um, we give them uh, an amount every year. But in addition to that, we put up $5,000 for a matching grant this year, and you guys responded in grand fashion, raising $6,000 on top of that five. We gave them $11,000, which allowed them to buy a vehicle uh, and get around in, in Rwanda. So thank you for that. I know many of you gave to that gift. Um, all of that stuff is made possible because of the faithful uh, tithes and offerings of, of you, of our people. Um, so I just want to put that before you and ask you to prayerfully consider that as uh, the end of the year approaches. Uh, you'll start to see in bulletins and weekly emails going forward some options of how you can give, uh, options for, for ways to do that. So I wanted to draw your attention to, to why that's going to be in the uh, email um, and the bulletins going forward. If you have Bibles, uh, we are in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. Uh, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, it's going to start on page 979. As Kayla mentioned, uh, next week we're, we're kicking off our celebration of Advent. We're, we're already there, if it, crazy enough. We're already to the, the Advent and Christmas season almost. Um, so this morning we're actually finishing up our series going through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to close out with the second half of Ephesians chapter 6. Now if you've been uh, tracking with us through this series, you're no, you'll notice there's a section that we actually skipped over, a section about husbands and wives and some other sacrificial relationships. I just want to say that because it's important. We're not skipping over that because that's unimportant. Uh, it's hugely important. It's a hugely important passage of Scripture. Uh, actually, at the end of the summer for us, we did a, a series on marriage itself and actually spent two weeks in this text itself, in, in the end of Ephesians 5. 
Um, so if you weren't here with us back at the end of the summer, I would encourage you to go back uh, to, to look at that. I think it was a six-week series that we did on marriage at the end of, of the summer. Uh, and you can always listen to, to sermons on our website or via our, our app. Um, so I encourage you to, back to, to go back and, and listen to those. Uh, about six months ago, I was down in North Carolina with a handful of pastor friends. And in addition to doing a lot of learning together, uh, one thing we got to do while we were there is spend some time at a shooting range, at a gun range. What else do pastors do when they get together? Go to a gun range together. Uh, the guy who, who runs this particular shooting range is named Frankie. And Frankie spent almost 20 years in the Special Forces, where his specialty was clearing houses. And clear, by clearing houses, I mean like kicking down doors with a team of a few other people where there were suspected enemies on the inside of that house with explosives or guns or other kinds of munitions, kicking down the door and clearing room by room a house to make it safe for other troops to, to pass by. So the unique feature of this shooting range that we went to is that Frankie has set up on one part of the property a makeshift house where he then trains teams of people and how to do close quarters combat and how to clear houses. So when our group was down there, we divided up into teams of two and took turns trying to go through this makeshift house and clear, clear the house. So two at a time would go through trying to clear it, and everybody else would kind of scatter uh, to a different spot in the house and wait to try to shoot the guys coming, coming through the door. We, uh, we were all given uh, M4 rifles, legitimate M4 rifles. They were just fitted so that they only would fire these things called man marker rounds. Uh, man marker rounds are about this big, uh, and they have a little BB on the top that when it hits you, it leaves a, a little paint mark on you. So think of it as like a really adult version of paintball. It just hurts a lot more than, <laughs> than, than paintballs hurt. It's like, it's like an airsoft gun times two, you know, something like that. So during my team's run, clearing the house, myself and another guy, uh, we, we were in the house, we were a couple rooms in, but we hadn't encountered anybody yet. So we're at the doorway almost positive that there's somebody on the other side of this door. We're like, we're going to encounter some fire on the other side of this door. And at that particular door, I was in the, the second position. So my teammate busts open the door, uh, goes in first, and immediately starts taking fire. And for a second, for like half a second, I'm right there with him. Like, I'm right on his back behind him. But when I hit the doorway, I just freeze. I just freeze. So we start taking fire. I'm in the doorway, and I'm shooting, but I'm, it's like rule number one of clearing houses, get into the room. Like, don't stop in the doorway. And I just freeze, stuck to the spot where I am. And so Frankie, who was actually in the house with us when, you, when we did this, he comes up behind me, and he shoves me into the room, <laughs> yelling, get in the fight. Get in the fight. And as I recall, he added a few colorful words <laughs> that, I that I won't share in addition. The main point, the main gist of what he was getting at there uh, was get in the fight. Now the letter of Ephesians closes with something very much like that. It's the Apostle Paul's call to get in the fight. And Paul is going to here draw our attention to a war which is constantly raging around us and within us. Some of us, perhaps, this morning are completely oblivious to that. Others of us are very aware that this war is a real thing, that it exists. But perhaps we're reluctant to live in a wartime mentality, preferring to, to instead sit on, on the sidelines. 
Or maybe we get really close to that fight, but like me, freeze in the doorway. So just as much as the Ephesians needed this centuries ago when it was originally written and read, we need the Apostle Paul to, through his words, put his hand firmly on our shoulder and guide us forward with a call to get in the fight. So listen for that as you follow along with me. I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10-24. through 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare, may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that, you may, so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychius, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come and we, some of us come already aware of our reluctance to enter the fight. Pray that you would stir in us a desire to enter the fight by your strength and might. Some of us come this morning and we're really confident in our ability to run into this fight, but we're overconfident. And I pray that you would make us reliant and dependent upon you, where only you have won the battle and win the wars. Uh, Guide us, use your word to do deep work in our hearts this morning, and we pray that in your name. Amen. So what Ephesians chapter 6 is going to expose in us, if it hasn't already already done that, is this, that, that we're either reluctant to fight at all, or, if we're not reluctant, that we're prone to fight the wrong war with the wrong weapons with a false sense of self-sufficiency. And instead, throughout this text, Paul is going to call us to stand. To stand strong in the Lord, to stand strong in the power of his might. Three different pieces that I want us to look at together this morning about that. We're to stand directed, we're to stand defended, and we're to stand dependent. Directed, defended, dependent. So first, we're to stand directed. Let me reread verse 12 for us. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. We, we often focus our energy on the wrong enemy. We get preoccupied with the wrong war. So our enemy, Paul says here, is not human. It's not made of flesh and blood. Instead, it's the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And what Ephesians 6 is saying here is that there are unseen and yet very real spiritual powers that are at work in our world. We come from a lot of different backgrounds in the room this morning. Depending where you've come from, depending on where you find yourself today, two errors that we can make when we think about this. One is to ignore unseen spiritual realities, to ignore spiritual warfare altogether. And many of us in the West, in our culture, are doubtful of anything supernatural. And we instead prefer to find a physical and a rational explanation for everything. Paul here would argue instead that Satan and demons are real spiritual forces who are powerful and who use that power to accuse, to deceive, to lie, to obstruct, to tear down. And so we ignore the existence of these spiritual forces of evil to our, to our peril, trying to find just a rational or physical explanation for everything. The other error is to become obsessively focused on the unseen spiritual realities. You know, where, where Satan and demons become the convenient excuse for every undesirable thing that happens to you in your life. So someone steals your parking spot, demon. <laughs> or you burn your toast this morning, Right? demon. That's, that's, not, that's not exactly what's happening there. It's, it's, um, there's a famous comedian in the 70s named Flip Wilson, famous line, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The existence of Satan and demons, the fact that they are a primary enemy, is actually never meant to be an excuse for us. It's never meant to be an excuse for our sin uh, and for the sins of, of others, the sins of people in our world. Sin is in our nature. Right? We are guilty in our nature, not just a product of our environment. So to obsessively look for Satan and for demons everywhere will ultimately, will inevitably, lead us to blame shift. It will lead us to neglect our responsibility, our responsibility for sin. So neither of those two errors, neither ignoring nor obsessing, we still stand directed against our real enemy. And one of the biggest results of focusing on our real enemy is that it will force us to pay attention to the multiple fronts on which this war is being fought. So if we're only looking at the physical realm, the flesh and blood enemies of, let's say in a personal example, someone who has hurt us deeply, that kind of enemy. Or in the more general distant sense, uh, terrorist groups like the ISIS groups of the world. If we're only thinking about those types of enemies, we're actually at risk of falling prey to far more subtle attacks. Consider this quote by a pastor and scholar named John Stott as he talks about the the tactics that these spiritual forces of evil use. He says this, We must not imagine, therefore, that open persecution and open temptation to sin are Satan's only or even his commonest weapons. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and deceive us into error. He prefers to seduce us into compromise and to deceive us into error. So to make this as practical as possible, let's apply this to a a huge issue that is before you and I today. The past weeks and months, if you're anything like me, you've been overwhelmed with the question of how to respond to the Syrian refugee crisis. 
Okay, and that issue became even more heightened this past week when, uh, in light of the terrorist attacks that happened in Paris two Fridays ago, all the discussion now is, is around the concern that terrorists might come into our country dis- disguised as, as refugees. I think Paul's words about our real enemy have everything to do with how we shape our response. It's not going to give us a real clear cut, here's exactly the answer. It has everything to do with how we shape our response, though. Because if our enemy is merely flesh and blood, then we will be consumed with fear about terrorists and about terrorist attacks on our own home soil. And we'll be focused almost exclusively on protection from persecution, from those kinds of of frontal attacks. We'll be preoccupied with that human enemy. If, however, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against these spiritual forces of evil, and if, this, if these frontal attacks are not Satan's only or most common weapons, then I think it's entirely plausible that his scheme in all of this will be to seduce us into feeling entitled to a comfortable and safe life. A life wherein we can ignore the plight of the marginalized in the midst of one of the worst refugee crises that our world has ever seen. Because when you encounter the God who is there, in the text of Scripture. Make no mistake about this. God's heart is for the refugee. And Christians, our identity, we are a refugee people in the world. It's our identity as the people of God. The people of God are people in exile. Like This is not our home. Our home is with God. And we are sent as exiles to seek the good of the place that we are. And we will be incredibly hard-pressed to find the place in Scripture that allows us then to choose self-preservation over costly and self-sacrificial love for widows, for orphans, for aliens, for refugees in the world. So here's my point. If we're struggling with the cost or the self-sacrifice of embracing caring for refugees, if we're struggling with that, let's just say it. Let's at least be honest about that. Because if we're honest at least we won't become ignorant to the war that is raging within us against our real enemy, wherein he is seducing us to somehow rationalize self-preservation as consistent with the way of Jesus. Right? Jesus is the one who gave himself at an infinite cost, an infinite self-sacrifice. It was the opposite of self-preservation. And I don't expect you to do this and, and not wrestle with this myself. Let me go first. I confess to you, I want safety and comfort. And I struggle with the cost and with the self-sacrifice that it will be, for, and I don't know what it will look like for me and for my family to open borders to people that we don't know their backgrounds, we don't know where they're coming from. But that, I think, is the seduction of Satan's attack. Because if my enemy is merely flesh and blood, well, that's easy, shut the borders. But if my, if my real enemies are the spiritual forces of evil, then I'd better wake up that those forces are fighting for a foothold in my own heart by making me fixated on comfort, making me fixated on safety rather than faithfulness to Jesus. So may I not give my real enemy that kind of quarter in my heart. May we not give our real enemy that kind of quarter by focusing on the wrong war. And I know this is a complex issue. So by all means, wrestle with this and debate the best policies for how to, how to do that. But let's at least, as we do that, not be ignorant of the seductive schemes of our real enemy 
who will seek to convince us that neglecting the poor, neglecting the helpless, the marginalized people of the world fits in with the way of Jesus because it does not. Like, I want sometimes a politician to say that so that I can, like, find, so I can have my pass, my free pass. You know, there's no free pass. There's no, it does not fit in with the way of Jesus. So we have to get in the fight, and by that I mean not only the fight out there, but the fight in here, in here. Just one last thought on this. This will make Christians sound weird to absolutely everybody in our culture. Okay? People who are liberal, who identify as liberal, will think Christians are crazy for talking about our real enemy being Satan and spiritual forces of evil and talking about the war being fought on the front of our own hearts. Like the, most liberal people don't have a category for that. Conservative people will think we're crazy for saying there's something more important than preserving our way of life. And the idea here is that the gospel is really an equal opportunity offender. It's an equal opportunity offender. It will offend each of us in very different and distinct ways. But make no mistake, it will offend us all. It will offend us all. And from where I sit, that's the amazing opportunity that's before you and I right now. Is that we can be light in the darkness of liberalism. We can be light in the darkness of conservatism. So let's not miss our moment to to do that. Okay. Once we're fighting the right war directed at the right enemy. We need the right weaponry. And so second, the call here is to stand defended. It's to stand defended. Verse 13. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Uh, If you have a background in the church, uh, if you grew up in the church, you've been around the church for a while, this is probably a a fairly well-known passage of Scripture. Uh, And largely that's because the vividness of the imagery that's here. Paul is going to call the people of God to fight with the weapons that are available to them. But rather than simply saying that, saying, hey, fight with these weapons of righteousness and faith and truth, he actually paints this picture of a heavily armed Roman foot soldier. And each piece of that foot soldier's armor is then one of these weapons that we are given by God. And if you remember, as he's writing these words, Paul is actually in Rome. He's imprisoned in Rome. So he probably sees heavily armed Roman foot soldiers like this very frequently in his, in his day-to-day life. We're going to touch just really briefly on each of the pieces that are there, but before we do, let me just encourage you in this. Um, you don't have to get overly hung up on trying to make all the kinds of connections to why like, faith is the shield and why righteousness is the breastplate. Depending on who you read about this, some people try to make connections to every single minute detail about that, and I think that can kind of steer us away from, from the point. The big idea here is that you have powerful weapons at your disposal. You have powerful weapons at your disposal. So, let's just walk our way through those. First is the belt of truth. And in the original language, the phrase there actually means something more like, gird up your loins with the belt of truth. That's an antiquated phrase. You probably don't talk to each other in modern vernacular about girding up your loins. If you do, you probably don't have very many friends. (laughs) But what that means is, be prepared. Be prepared. Be prepared with truth. And it's not altogether clear here whether Paul is speaking more about God's truth, like doctrinal truth, or if he's speaking more about our practice of truthfulness. He's actually talked about both of those already in this letter. And if we've seen anything in Ephesians, it's that Paul always connects those two things. He connects the work of God to our work. So in this case, he probably leaves that a little bit vague intentionally, to capture that same idea. The idea being that God's truth, his revealed truth, drives our practice of truthfulness. 
And so he's saying there, prepare yourself with that truth strapped around your waist. Second is the breastplate of righteousness. And really in all of these weapons, there's this interaction between the work of God and the work that that we're called to do. So again here, it's not exactly clear what Paul is trying to convey with the word righteousness. In, In one respect, righteousness might refer to the finished work of Jesus. We as Christians believe that that by faith in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that he has accomplished for us our righteousness. So when God then looks at us, he sees not the marred and tainted and corrupted record of our sin, but he instead sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that is an amazing defense against the attacks of Satan, because Jesus has done what we could not do. On the other hand, righteousness here might refer to our own righteous pursuits. Pursuing what is right and what is true and, and what is good. And when we pursue those things, that keeps us alert. It keeps us aware of our enemy. It helps us not fall prey to his schemes. I, I love what this one author named Leon Morris said about this. He said, you can drift into sin, but not into righteousness. You can drift into sin, but not into righteousness. Like the natural, we talked about that last week when we talked about the days being evil, like the natural gravitation of our hearts is not toward good. We drift into sin, not to righteousness. So if we're pursuing righteousness intentionally, that keeps us alert and aware. So combining these two, really what we're saying with the breastplate of righteousness, what Paul's saying, is that we are to reflect the righteousness of God as protection from our enemy. Third, shoes of the readiness of the gospel of peace. And it's fascinating to me that Paul refers to the gospel of peace as he writes about a war that is raging. And that means that the peace that's brought about by Jesus, it's not about our circumstances. It's not about the absence of conflict, because he's writing about this very much in the midst of conflict. So instead, the peace of the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means, is good news. It's the good news that we have been united with Jesus. It's the good news that in the midst of the warfare, we are his and he is ours. And consequently, because, because we have this presence and communion and relationship with Jesus, consequently, we always have our shoes on. We're ready for whatever comes. We're ready for whatever the, the warfare entails. And one specific implication here that Paul is driving at, because he talks about it a little more later, is evangelism. And there are references in Scripture uh, in the book of Isaiah. Paul also talks about this in the book of Romans, where, uh, where it speaks about the beautiful feet of the messengers who bring good news. And so what Paul is saying here is that we are ready at all times to bring the good news. Like the Apostle Peter elsewhere says, we're always prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. And I think that particularly is applicable here, because if we have peace in the midst of these kind of circumstances, in the midst of warfare, that's going to be a distinctively Christian kind of hope. People are going to be confused about why, you, why we have hope and why we have peace in the midst of conflict. And so in those moments, we have an opportunity to give a reason for, for that hope. Fourth thing here is the shield of faith. And verse 16 there speaks of the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, Satan's name, the, the English word Satan, where that comes from in the original languages means accuser or slanderer. And so his attacks, these flaming darts 
come in the form of doubts and lies and accusations that would lead us to distrust the goodness and the power of God. So for our protection, for our defense in that, we have a shield of faith. And faith, what is faith? Faith is clinging to the promises of God. Faith is taking God at his word. It's believing that he is good and that he is willing and that he is able. So when Satan accuses us and flings a dart of condemnation, like for example, and maybe some of you have felt this lately or even this morning in your own heart, the lie that there is no possible way that God could love a sinner like you, that God could forgive what you have done this week or last night or a couple weeks ago. When Satan flings that dart, the shield of faith blocks that by clinging to the promise of God, which says that therefore in Christ Jesus there is now no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And this is really important here too. This isn't at all about how much faith we can muster in a given moment. This isn't about the strength or amount of our faith. Right? Faith is so much more about God's faithfulness than it is about the amount of faith that we can muster up in a, in a given moment. Faith, clinging to God, hides us in God. It connects us to Him who is our refuge and shelter. And therefore, faith, as little as it might be in a given moment, is actually the safest place in the world to be. So it connects us to our God. Fifth, the helmet of salvation. Salvation is the, the ultimate assurance of our protection. Right? If we are saved, if we are rescued, redeemed, adopted into God's family, kept by Jesus, then what can man, what can other people do to us? Moreover, what can Satan do to us? It's like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I am sure that neither life, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, and when he says rulers there, that's the same word for spiritual forces of evil, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if our, if our head is this symbolic focal point and figurehead of the body, if it's also a particularly vulnerable point of attack, then the helmet of salvation is really the perfect protection for our head. And lastly here, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the best illustration of this in action actually comes from the life of Jesus himself. Early in Jesus' earthly ministry, before he actually really begins his earthly ministry, he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And Satan shows up and he tempts Jesus, hey, show allegiance to me, take the easy way out, give me some honor, don't give that honor to God. And Jesus' weapon, his response in that moment, is to quote from the book of Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's exactly what Paul's referring to here when he says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We combat lies and we combat the accusations of Satan with the truth and with the good news of God, which has been revealed to us in his word. And just a little side note here that I think is also worth saying. Um, this is why reading Scripture and, and memorizing Scripture is never meant to be viewed as like an obligation or part of a Christian's to-do list. I think that's the wrong way to approach what Scripture is. It's, it's meant to, Scripture is meant to form us. It's meant to shape us. It's meant to prepare us 
for the daily warfare that we will no doubt encounter. So I just would encourage you in that. Don't read Scripture because you have to. Read Scripture because you get to. Because you get to. You don't have to take your wooden spoon into the war when there's a sword available for you to take into the war. You get to do this. This is a precious gift of God. So we stand directed. We stand dependent. Thirdly, lastly, we, sorry, we stand um, defended. Thirdly and lastly, we stand dependent. Even if we are in the fight, and even if we're fighting, if we're directed at the right enemy and we're using the right weapons, we're, another fatal flaw that we're likely to make in this is to fight with a false sense of self-sufficiency. Right? We read this call to suit up with the armor of God, and the image that we get in our mind is like Rambo. You know, we're putting all of our gear on and ready to like go solo into the fight. Like, hey, thank you, God, for all the weapons. I got it from here. I'll take it. I'll take them down. And that's, that's not what the armor of God is about. And thinking that way is actually a radical overestimation of ourselves and a radical underestimation of our enemy. So Paul draws this text to a close, this battle cry, which it really is, he draws it to a close, not where you might think he would go with it, a declaration of self-sufficiency. You can do it, go and do it. He closes it with a declaration of dependence. Pray, he says. Pray all the time with all prayer and supplication. Pray also for me that I might not be cowardly, but that I would be bold for the sake of the gospel. Do you hear how needy that is? Do you hear how needy that is? Pray all the time in every way for all of time, for all people, including me. Okay, that is the opposite of self-sufficiency. What, what is prayer but a reminder of our dependence? What is continual prayer but a reminder of our continual dependence? So to pray is really to agree with God and to declare to God, we cannot do it on our own. It's like the song that we sometimes sing together, every hour I need thee. Every hour. So make no mistake about this. Ephesians 6 is a call to action. It is a call from the Apostle Paul to get in this fight. It's a call to alertness. It's a call to engagement. But it is not a call to self-sufficiency. Be strong, but what does Paul say? Not in yourself, be strong in the Lord. Stand and withstand, but not in your own ability. Stand in the strength and the might of God. And put on your armor, but that armor is the armor of God. It has been forged by the work that he has done, and it's been given to us that we might indeed stand. See, because though it's possible to overestimate ourselves, it's impossible to overestimate the strength and the might of God's power. It's impossible to overestimate that. Our enemy is formidable. Satan, spiritual forces of evil, formidable foe, incredibly powerful. But they are a vapor compared to God's power. They are a vapor compared to God's power. Though they rage against us, though this war is very real, they rage as a defeated enemy awaiting their inevitable destruction. It's like Martin Luther, the famous reformer, penned in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word will fell him. One little word will fell him. So lean into your dependence. 
pray at all times with all prayers and all supplications because it's in that declaration of dependence that you and I will fix our eyes exactly where they are supposed to be, which is on the strength and the might of Jesus. See, because though he is our real enemy, though he is powerful, Satan is not meant to occupy our direct line of sight. He's meant to be in our peripheral vision. So may we instead get our eyes on the strength and might of Jesus. May we get in the fight because it is a fight that he has already won. And our strength and our ability to stand comes not from our self-sufficient efforts, but from our dependence on him. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, would you cause us to stand in your finished work? We rejoice that you are victorious, that you have died, but you have risen from the dead, that you have conquered the grave, that the decisive blow has been dealt to Satan, to sin, to death. In these days that we are in where we rage in this war, we are, we are consumed in this war against spiritual forces of evil, would you cause us to stand because we are dependent and connected to you? Would you help us to stand in the strength of your might? Would you wake us up to this war that's raging if we're, if we're oblivious to it? Would you, if we're reluctant, would you guide us into it? Would we run into the fight? Would we get into the fight, not because we are sufficient, but because you are? Would we get into the fight because you have already won the battle? We confess our weakness. We confess our fickleness. We confess our reluctance and our hesitation. And we come again to this table this morning to be strengthened, to be renewed in the goodness and the grace of your gospel, to be sent as your people back into the world, to love, to care for, and to fight this fight against our real enemy. We pray this in your name. Amen.